Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour. I'm Michael Apple. It's Friday, the 25th of February. It's our BPH Digest edition. You know what that means. It's all the most downloaded interviews from the week that was. No local news, no markets, but we're still giving you all you need to know about the unfolding Russia-Ukraine situation from our partner, the Financial Times. Let's get to it. David Shapiro, veteran JSC analyst. Two big commodity counters released results this morning, Sassel and Anglo-American. Let's start with the former. Good performance, no dividend. Fair retail story the last two years. What's your high-level analysis telling you on Sassel's results? You know, I, I think we're going to talk Amplats as well. They both fit into the same category. When you look at commodity companies, What's under their control is production and costs. What's out of their control are pricing and the currency. You know, those are the two. So you have to measure all of those together. And both companies had blowouts in terms of uh, pricing. So Sassel was supported by a massive increase in the Brent oil price and a big increase in chemical prices, which was in their favor. But credit to management having turned the ship around. I mean, aided and abetted by much better Brent oil price and by better chemical prices. Yes, input is also was you know is also a part of their uh, uh, ethylene goes in and you come out with polyethylene and that. But those prices and the chemical prices helped them. So now how, you, you say what, how do we look forward? You know, are they on the right track to keep that going? Possibly yes. I think I think they will. Will we see the kind of returns that we saw this year again? No, you can't. You know, you can't expect that. So, but you know, I, I'm I'm so pleased that management is on the right track. They brought down debt. They still got massive debt. You know, don't don't ignore it. But they're generating the kind of cash that can actually reduce it. So, I think you've got to make a call on where you think oil's going. I think it's going to hold up at these prices. The RAND will hold up. Now it's up to uh, operational efficiencies for them to produce uh, decent profits. And they've got it. You know, they're coming off a low base. So so uh, they had bad production in, in South Africa. They can improve that. They, they're still getting Lake Charles right, so they can improve that. So I think now it's now it's management, you know, and we'll see how they Interestingly, do. Interestingly, Sassel's sort of pivoted from a pure oil counter to, if I look at the EBITDA number, half oil, half chemicals. Oil and chemicals prices have both been robust since March 2020, hence Sassel going up by multiples. Chemicals businesses are genuinely valued at higher multiples, which I read as more sustainable, therefore better going into the future. Am I misunderstanding this? No. Look, and, and I mean, both are used in industry, so there's a very tight uh, connection with uh, with industry, you know, uh, the product that they produce. So if you think that there's going to be global growth and demand's going to be there, then you're on the right track. You know, they can maintain those margins and they can do well. You know, oil is, is, is much more difficult to read and the production of oil, the refinement of oil. So you're dead right. It's a much more sustainable business. That's why they shifted. You know, that's why they shifted away from gas to liquids to uh, much more on much more the uh, chemical production. So I, you know, I'm not a pair. I'm not a, a pair. I mean, a bear. 
<laughs> I, I'm, I'm generally bullish. And I, I know we're going through quite a rough time now with the news. It's not easy to digest from inflation to the Russia-Ukraine problem and that. But overall, investment, business investment looks robust. And I think we're going to, you know, we're in for a good period of business investment. I don't want to say investment because that that suggests, you know, investors, you and me buying some shares and that. But I'm talking business investment, the fixed stuff that goes, you know, build factories and, and build businesses. I think that's pretty robust at the moment. So I'm quite positive on the outlook for for commodities in that area, you know, in the in the investment side of uh, business investment side of things. David, you mentioned the cash flows, the pure profits, the cash generative nature of Sassel at these spot commodity prices. Do you not think it makes sense for maybe the next few periods to withhold a portion of that money, whether it be distributions via dividends or share buybacks, and spend that money for research and development on the new drivers of energy in the green economy? You, you know, you're so, <laughs> you're so right. Listen, for me, that is... Uh, it's a it's the biggest option that's available. I I, I I'm doing something for, you know uh, for a talk at the moment, and I'm looking at that, and I'm looking at the the tech companies who put back about twenty percent of their of their profits, uh, you know, to sustain the growth of their businesses. And we don't do enough of it in South Africa. And I don't think I I'm not sure that these uh, businesses do. Uh, enough of that. So you, you're 100% right. They should have a full division that just looks at, you know, creates that kind of environment. Um, so yeah, I'm on your side of that and to, to look, for, you know, to look for areas like that. Look, they've got issues they've got to address. Sassel in South Africa has to address the clean air, you know, clean energy side of it. They've got to clean up their act and spend a lot of money doing that. But at the same time, you're right. They can look for other ways of generating, um, you know, of generating future revenue. Yeah, definitely. On that topic, David, Sassel Net Zero 2050 goals. Is this hype, uh, investor relations, tick box exercises, or is this actually can this actually be a reality? I I hope it's a reality, but I think getting there is going to be a lot more difficult. You know, I know that's a big argument. The big debate is whether we can actually give up fossil fuels, you know, whether we can uh, go into sustain in, into renewables. Uh, but it's, a, it's, it's, it's so difficult for us to give that up at the, at, at the stage. So I think it's going to be a big ask. But you need tough government and tough uh, management to get there. Have we got it? I don't know. It's very easy to concede. When things look tough, you concede, and I, I still think it's going to be a, a, a rough path to, to get there. But at least it's there, and they will report to it, and you can address them, and you can attack them every year or every six months on that. And there's nothing worse for a CEO to sit in a boardroom and be attacked by some snotty little youngster, you know, rightfully requesting, you know, asking these questions. So, yeah. They don't want to be in that position, you know. They don't want to have the arrogance <laughs> of, of of being snooty because I think the youngsters have got uh, time on their sides and and they've got the the argument on their sides. Last time we used pivot during this conversation, David, we're going to shift from Sassel to Anglo-American Platinum. Unbelievable numbers, three hundred rand full year dividend. That's if you include the interim dividend, the full year dividend, and the special dividend. 
crazy numbers. They were trading below this mark a few years ago. Your high-level analysis of the numbers. That's that's commodities. You know, if you're going to follow platinum, the, the time to buy it is when they bombed out. And then when it's there, we, we only see downside. We don't see upside. You know, we haven't got the courage to actually uh, believe in the future. So we miss those opportunities. You know, I think I think now we're at the level where platinum is 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 pretty high, and we've got to make the same calls. But again, we go back to management. Can they continue to increase production? Can they find new revenue lines? You know, can they keep costs under control? Um, hopefully, yes. You know, and sustain these kind of uh, you know these kind of profits. But they had a cracker year. I mean, if if what was the rand basket up? Uh, 50 60 percent or something like that the dollar basket was was even higher so you know can rhodium and 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 uh, palladium and all these prices maintain these kind of you know continue to go i don't know i i, I i'm i'm not so sure you know i'm quite happy at these levels but um, then it's up to the miners and I don't, I don't, you know, when you call me a veteran that's how we used to operate back in the 70s and 80s where mines never had the benefit of higher prices. They had to be efficient and they had to have operational efficiencies. And people bought them for a return of cash, you know, for the dividends. But I think it was a really good result. And once more, you've got to give credit to management for for producing what they did produce. Sure, David. Uh, David, more on a behavioral finance perspective. I think this stands for both Sassel and Anglo Platts. Sassel a 17-bagger in two years, Anglo-Platinum a 10-bagger in five years. It's easy to sell on 100% or 200% gains, but that would have turned out to be a bad mistake, yet there hasn't been a bad profitable trade in history. On the contrary, positions like these can take up a disproportionate amount of your portfolio if they continue to run. Long story short, how does one know when to sell? Yeah, that's, that, that's so difficult. Uh, I look the charter. You know, I, I look at the trend, and in both cases, the trend is still pointing upwards. And I think you've got to watch that carefully. You know, you've got to watch when the smart money leaves. <laughs> you know, that's you know, they say the trend is your friend, but I mean, when it starts to slope the other way, all that's telling you is, listen, the smart money's getting out, and I like to follow the smart money. And at the moment, the smart money's still getting in, so. I think you can just continue the journey a little longer. You know, I don't think it's time to get out yet, um, especially if you've had it for so long. But you'll soon be able, you'll soon tell when when it's... Uh... Look, you know, the price a year ago was actually, in Amplates, was higher than we are at the moment. So that gives you some kind of idea of, of, of how volatile this can be. But for the meantime, just, you know, you don't have to get out at this stage. David, you know I don't like to put you on the spot, but just to finish off, Sassel or Anglo Platts on a five-year basis, which one would you rather hold? I think I like Anglo Platts. Yeah, I'm, I, I prefer Anglo Platts. I don't Sassel. There are too many moving parts. You know, there's too, there are far too many moving parts. Whereas Platinum, we can just read Platinum, Palladium, Rhodium, whatever it is, and and also I, again, I think we're getting into a uh, a period of of good fixed investment. You know of of business investment, and that's that's one of my driving themes. You know, it translates into a lot of things. You know, electric cars. It's all around that. But I think demand for for these clean metals is going to continue. 
Good afternoon. My name is Michael Apple. With me in studio, it's a great pleasure to have Stafford Macy. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Mm. I'm, I must admit, I have never come across you in my professional career as okay. a journalist. Lucky I was looking at corruption and fraud, so I'm very glad we've never actually met. <laughs> but I must say, when I googled an image of you, yeah. I thought, hold on, mm-hmm. I know this guy. Oh, no. I have seen him Cell block wing. jumping on a rebounder oh, yeah. trampoline. Yeah. Do you often get... Uh, no, not, not often, but that's my wife. My wife's business, which I've invested in. Yeah. Lisa Rally. I think people know Lisa really, really well. She's a fitness and wellness celebrity uh, in South Africa. And um, yeah, she has a business... Um, which is Lisa Rally. It's Bounty as the business with an yeah, I yeah. and uh, mini trampolines and the health impact that they have. And it's, it's, a, it's a miracle exercise, you know, <laughs> developed by NASA. And you'll find me jumping on it often. Yeah. Yes. Oh, th- that's exactly it. That's where I first caught sight okay. of you. So, you know, put all your entrepreneurship and your tech investments <laughs> to a side. No, it's through your wife that I came to okay, know who great. you are. Well, that's a good thing. So, uh, you know, I don't want to ask you to get the, let the cat out the bag mm. too much, but you are a speaker at the upcoming Business Investment Conference, what we call BNC3. Uh, it starts next week. You're going to be speaking about a space a lot of people are nervous about. A lot of people are nervous because they simply just don't know about cryptocurrency. Right. So uh, give us a little taster. Firstly, who are you in a, in a two-minute sprint? Right. Who are you? Why should people know who Stafford Massey right. is? Uh, if you have a computer in this country, you should know why. Um, and cryptocurrency. So who I am right now is I sit on two boards, um, the CSIR from a science perspective and a, what we do as a country, investing in research. That uh, body is the most undervalued body, body in South Africa in terms of what it does and the impact that it has and the intellectual property housed in that institution is, is astounding. And I love being on that board. I've been on that board for about, I think, almost four years now. I was on the board of Advertech before for seven and a half years and uh, jumped off that board, um, felt that I, I did my time. And then I jumped onto the uh, Discovery Bank board. So I'm on the board of Discovery Bank, uh, looking at things from the inner workings from a banking perspective and uh, looking at what they're doing as a startup bank in South Africa, which is quite fascinating. But I'll be speaking in a personal capacity. I, uh, I've been in the technology space for a long time. You know, I'm 47 now. I've been in it since the mid-90s. And I've been lucky enough to grow up with technology in terms of its big epoch changes, for lack of a better term. You know, when the internet came to be, I was lucky. I was working at Telcom um, in the middle 90s. And we got to touch the internet for the first time because it was a monopoly company and no one else could. And I saw the internet there for the first time, which is fascinating. And I'll never forget that. And that's where I had my goosebump moment was when the internet didn't have a user interface, but we were capable of communicating and exchanging information on a global basis with open protocols. And that was just, you know, emailing with SMTP, uh, using HTTP, using TCP IP, these protocols that were freely built and written by engineers out there, and we were utilizing them to exchange information, and we thought, this is going to change mankind. We just, the internet was loud and screamy back then, but we got goosebumps because of what we were capable of doing with it. Um, And then I moved to the United States with a multinational software company, Novell was one of the biggest software companies in the world at the time, and I worked at the corporate head office with Eric Schmidt, and he was a gentleman that went on to become the CEO of Google, uh, so we worked for him in Utah, and uh, that's where I had my second major 
goosebump moment. And that's when I bumped into people like Nat Friedman, Miguel de Casa. And these were people that had built communities in the open source software space. And I'll never forget going to MIT's campus, visiting with them and watching them lecture and walking away there, just, just goosebumps because I knew open source software was going to be big. I couldn't tell you why. I just felt that the amount of humanity cascading into the space was going to be tectonic. We just saw it with the internet too, the amount of people with, that were coming out of universities, people from the computer science domain that were cascading into the internet. And what I mean by that, they were writing and contributing to these open protocols that made the internet a reality. Um, to be in that community and to see what that community was doing was the reason we knew it was going to be big. It wasn't like because the technology could do this. Because when we showed people the internet before the browser, it was a horrible experience. It was like a VI screen, text-based bulletin boards. You'd have to put a card into a tower, connect it, build a driver for it, you know, bind the protocol on top of that, and then you'd be connected to the internet. And then we'd, we'd download a file and it would take two, three weeks for it to download. Um, and there was actually a competition, I'll never forget it at Talcom, where we put a pigeon with a message on its leg and we sent an email to determine who would get there first and the pigeon won. I'll never forget that. <laughs> so, so I come from those days, right? With, with like I saw it there and then I had my goosebumps moments when, with open source software in the United States and it was just this incredible thing. I knew it was going to be big and I became a big proponent of it and I came back to South Africa and I led a lot of what that movement was about. To say I led it is, is strong. I was part of the leadership in that domain. And, and you know, a lot of people looked at that because they were buying proprietary software. And it was like, how can proprietary software that we can get in the box from Microsoft or Novell or Oracle ever be outstripped by this thing that kids write in their spare time? And there were principles that I observed that when that amount of humanity cascades, and even if it's mediocre work, you never underestimate it ever. And we saw it with the internet and then we saw it with open source software. I mean, today, fast forward to today, you know, the internet, look what it's done to mankind, number one. Number two is take a look at open source software, your phone that you're running, the watch on your arm, um, the cloud that you access in the sky. Um, everything runs on open source software. It's software written freely by human beings out there. It's an astonishing thing. So the internet's open protocols, the software that runs it now, the open software, open source software is being written freely by individuals out there and contributing freely. This is synonymous, or this is a metaphor for where we are again today. And this is my th when I had my third goosebumps moment. I wanted to ask you about yeah. that because throughout your career, you've been driven, I wouldn't say by emotion, but by a gut feel. Every time you get goosebumps, you said the first time you dealt with the internet yeah. and the user interface, and then the second was open source software. And I suspect you're going to get to a third goosebumps yeah. moment. Yeah, the third goosebumps for me was when six, seven years ago, um, someone installed a crypto wallet for me and I didn't understand how it worked. You went and, to learn. And I was like, what's this Bitcoin thing? Like, guys, explain it to me. I know, like, everyone's talking about it. All my engineers are speaking about it. Like, what is this thing? And at the time, I'll never forget, I was at Thumbs Up and we built this little payment device and it went global and it was like one of the last... The Pebble, yeah. Huh? The Pebble, yeah, the yeah. payment Pebble, which, which we invented. And yeah, so we were in this money space, in this exchange of value space. And take a look at the context from where I came. I had built this invention with my team. We invented this little thing called a payment pebble. You plugged it into a phone and it changed the phone into a card acceptance device. Mm. So we created secure rails over a non-secure platform to exchange keys with a backend to unlock value and exchange value over the wire with this very arcane backend, right? So if you take a look at how we did it, the payment pebble plugged into a phone. There was software on the phone. There was software and firmware and hardware and keys and 
crypto on that device so it could read your card. So when you put your card in there, it would activate and unlock the keys and do the necessary key exchange so you could do the transaction securely. Mm. Then we'd go over the wire and then we'd connect to this PCI DSS mainframe backend bank, right? Lots of stuff, very secure. Um, and all the things that get put in there to make that secure, you know, people, process, and technology that enables you to have the assurance that your bank account is there and that I can send money from Alec, from myself to Alec and Alec to myself. That fabric is incredibly thick, complex, arcane, doesn't change often. And then suddenly someone gave me a crypto wallet. I understand my background, right? So I was the guy that had founded a company. I had these incredible engineers and we had built incredibly arcane technology, right? From firmware, hardware, manufacturing, key exchanges, key facilities, key injection facilities. I mean, crypto, crypto, crypto. And then suddenly here was this crypto wallet and I could send value from one person to the other without any need for any of that. Do yeah. you feel slightly conflicted no. by virtue of the fact that you sit on the board of a bank which is essentially the middleman that is cut out by cryptocurrency and the blockchain i think that's a strong statement i right. think um, to say that a middle the bank is the middleman that will get, get cut, cut out i don't think so mm -hmm. um, i can't speak on behalf of discovery and obviously i can't disclose anything within that organization but i think banks have a role to play i don't think i mean it's as, it's as wild as saying card is going to kill cash right so but the biggest competitor that Visa and MasterCard and everyone else has isn't the next card company. It's not American Express. It's cash. Cash is still the fastest growing form of payment in the world. Cash-based transactions in South Africa are arguably 30 to 40 to 60 times bigger than the formal economy. So the bank movement of money. So, so no, I don't think crypto displaces. I think crypto gives us things that we could before never think we never thought was imaginable is now imagined. It's now reality. And that's incredible. So, so when I got my crypto wallet for the first time, that's when I had my biggest goosebumps that I ever had in my life from a technology mm -hmm. uh, professional perspective, right? And suddenly, yeah, I was, and I was exchanging value with another human being and there was no intermediary and there was no bank required and there was no government required and there was nothing. And it was more secure than any of the stuff that we had built. That was a mind low right because yeah. think about the context right me as this guy that built all this bank fabric mm. understood bank fabric extraordinarily well had deep has i have deep respect for bank fabric and here was this thing exchanging value more securely and i was like wait this guy and it took me the first time i looked at it i was like no no what, what have i been no. doing my whole life no actually i, I refused it i thought this is rubbish ah. it's like no and then all my history kicked in because I was doing exactly what everyone was doing when I told them about the internet, what everyone was doing when I told them about open source software. When I first, for the first time, touched Booker, I was like, it's rubbish, it's not, mm -hmm. never. But then when you study it and you start to understand it, it is incredible because it's not a single goosebump moment. It is a continuous, significant amount of epiphany that hits you nonstop from the white paper all the way through to experiencing it when you actually moving value in this world it's extraordinary it's extraordinary it's to, to a point of being scary right speaking of scary is the volatility of something like bitcoin it's 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 throws tantrums almost like a toddler isn't that a scary space to be in i i, I think currencies in the world are a scary place to be in. i think stock exchanges are a scary place to be in. i think the scariest place to be right now is in the traditional markets i uh, that's much scarier than 
than Bitcoin, in my opinion. Um, if you take a look at the amount of dollars in circulation today, they were literally the majority of them. I mean, let me hear the stat. The majority of US dollars in circulation today were printed in the last 24 months. That's, that is not sustainable. The fact that in the early 70s, Nixon did something where he separated this global monetary thing and created a global monetary policy on the basis of the currency not being backed by, by gold created something that is the biggest mass fiction and that fiction is, is meeting its reality. And I think what's happened over the last 24 months is that the populace out there have undergone a mass acceleration of digitization, right? People that have never put their credit cards into websites to buy groceries were doing it in lockdown because they had to, whether they were 70, 80 years old, all the way through to the youngest, right? So we had this mass digitization. And through this mass digitization, I think people have started to understand, well, wait a minute, there's this thing out there. And literally in the last 24 months, let's be honest, Bitcoin, Ethereum, all these other things have now hit mass headlines. We're seeing big organizations moving your bottom line money into this into this asset class. And they're betting on this asset class versus keeping their money in the traditional bonds or in a bank account. Because if you take a look at inflation, which is a scary thing right now because the fundamentals are so broken in our economies at the moment because of lockdowns, because of everything that's happened. And the stimulus, we call it, you know, stimulus. What is stimulus? It's central banks printing money yeah. and just increasing debt. And when we look at those debt numbers, it's not sustainable. And we were always worried about what was going to happen. And I think what's happened right now is, is Bitcoin. And it's the answer. And it, 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 it's creating a new global monetary framework for value exchange. It doesn't require government. It cannot be switched off. Mm. Um, and in my opinion, putting your money in it, that's my opinion. It's not an investment advice, but putting your, it's, I don't see anywhere else that's safer. I don't. If my 85-year-old mother was watching this and she has no idea what crypto is, if I had to ask you in 30 seconds to describe to my mother what it is, go ahead. It is a place where you can put your money that has better value, better capability, and a better future than gold because it's got more of a utility than gold. And your 85-year-old money is based upon a piece of metal that may be difficult to mine and gain access to, arguably rare, but has no divisibility. It cannot be exchanged easily. It has been detached from currency. Um, therefore, it just is no longer applicable. It's now been replaced by a digital mechanism that not only has all of its assets in terms of, of scarcity, there will only be 21 million of them, but it also gives you the ability to program your money and to do things with your money that wasn't previously possible. Example, 85-year-old Mrs. X, you can create a will, you can take your money, you can program your money and say it will pay out to your son in this amount of time based upon these conditions. And when you sign it with those keys, no authority in the world will ever be able to undo it, not even you. And it will pay out based upon those conditions because the math will enforce it. Not a legal contract, nothing that you've signed physically. Um, and it will be more secure than any contract and it will be more verifiable than any other legal piece of paper, no matter who signed it in the entire world. Well, Stafford, this is supposed to be the starter, not the, the, the main <laughs> course. But I Lots very much look forward to having you at the, at the BNC3. 
And uh, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, I love it. I, I'm, it's going to be exciting because I know there's lots of leaders over there that are quite skeptical, big people with big businesses that are very much dependent on the traditional way of things. So I'm going to try and kind of just shake that cage a little bit on the day. Good to have you. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Magnus Haystack, Brenthurst Wealth Management Founder. Magnus, this wasn't your first budget speech and it certainly won't be your last. Uh, what were your main takeaways? Just a high-level analysis to start up with. I think my impression was it's it's like a, a, a new a Springbok fly half. He's having his first game. The whole world is watching his moves and what he's going to do. And I kind of got the impression he was a little bit nervous at start and he was he was jumping around. But then he got into his rhythm and it wasn't a bad speech. I mean, let's be fair. You know, it's it was a very neutral uh, speech, came across well and with a bit of a humor here and there. So it wasn't too bad, but it's early days. I must tell you that. And I must tell you what, as they say, as Gary Player always used to say about luck, luck counts. Now, the new Minister of Finance came into the position with a tremendous amount of luck in the form of the commodity boom. And we've spoken about this on this program, I think going back a year already, where I said South Africa, the lucky country. And suddenly you've got this enormous commodity cycle bringing with it an enormous economic and tax um, windfall of anything between 180 and 200 billion rand. And, and that changes everything. I mean, any Minister of Finance would love to go into a budget speech knowing that there's an extra 182 billion in the bank and he can come across as being very generous and he's going to get a great coverage. But that's the danger. The danger is, is it a windfall? Is it permanent? And how are they going to deal with the fact if it is not permanent and the commodity cycle goes down again, heaven forbid, as it has done in the past, 2011, uh, previous cycles, and they go down very dramatically. And then, and, and, and that, that's the big issue. Is this a short-term windfall or is it more permanent? And, and we, we'll only, only time will tell. Magnus, what is Treasury looking to do with this windfall? And with your concerns, what would you do if you were in the position of the finance minister with this great windfall that has come as a result of the tailwinds from the commodity boom? Well, from a purely economic point of view, the windfall should have been used uh, mostly to reduce our, our fiscal situation, the slow movement towards a debt standstill. But from a political and a socio-economic perspective, we're sitting with an unemployment number of 40% plus. We're sitting with tremendous human suffering across the country, job losses, uh, people without jobs. And I think it was a very, very hard decision to make um, what do I do first? And I think it's a, it's a balancing act. About 45 billion rand of that is going to the extension of this basic, uh, the unemployment uh, grant. And now the big debate is, is it going to become permanent? And afterwards, on, on one of the TV channel interviews, the minister was not uh, very specific. He touched this issue about whether it's going to become permanent or not. But nevertheless, that issue was also raised by Isa Mushlangu, the uh, economist of Alexander Forbes. He wrote a very, very good piece two days ago warning that if this becomes permanent and at a higher level that a lot of people are pushing for, 
we could be running into serious financial difficulty two or three years down the line. Um, and that is your danger. So it's a mixture of politics, uh, what needs to be done, common sense, and of course, and in South Africa, nobody's always happy or unhappy. It's a little bit of everything. Magnus, let's talk a little bit about the infrastructure spend. We heard about it first around 18 months ago. Whether it's been implemented or not, we don't know. If I look at the results of the construction companies and the management that I chat to when their results come out, there is no sign that this infrastructure spend is in action. They still talked, spoke about it today. Um, what were your takeaways from that little theme, the infrastructure-specific spend? Yeah, there's, it's quite clear that if you speak to anybody in construction, they are all looking a little bit askew and looking at each other and saying, where is this construction spend? It's not happening with my company, but and, and quite, quite bluntly, it's not happening. Uh, we've been talking about this for how long? Sonar speeches, budget speeches, um, this massive ex infrastructure spend, but it still is not happening. Let's hope it starts rolling out quite now. The big problem is, do we have the capacity left in South Africa to handle such big projects? A lot of our big construction companies have laid off people, have merged, have closed down, and our construction sector has shrunk fairly dramatically. There's been an exodus of skilled people, engineers, road builders, to other parts of the world as a result of the non-delivery in South Africa. Now we have the issue of infrastructure being included into pension fund um, assets, type of prescribed assets. The large pension funds um, are already saying that they would love to get involved. But the big issue is, are there projects that are bankable and will produce a return to the investors? Because remember, this is not government money. It's not taxpayers' money. It's pensioners' money. And this is where it's going to be very, very interesting. We've already seen on Sunday, we saw Professor Mark Swilling, you know, he's the chairman of the Development Board of South Africa, saying that the construction mafia has to be dealt with. They have invaded most construction projects across the country. So this is not just bar talk. This is from the top saying it's a reality. Anywhere where there's construction activity in South Africa, these guys just rock up, uh, intimidate uh, the workers, the staff, saying, oh, we want 30% of this con contract. And people are closing up shop. We've had people killed in, in Rich's Bay a while ago. So this is a real problem. There's, there's the mafia-style intimidation of construction industry. And you now have the pension fund managers who would like to spend money in that sector, and it still is not happening. This is a very problematic. How do you put all these moving parts together that in the end of the day, it adds to the upliftment of the economy of uh, South Africa's future, but produces a return to the investors. And if it doesn't produce uh, a return for the investors, because this is going to be watched by the media, guys like yourself, myself, how will individual investors re react if they see that their money, which is going into infrastructure partially, is not returning any kind of returns beyond inflation. So that's a very, very interesting period we're moving into. Let's talk about ESCOM for a second. Almost unequivocally, analysts and strategists like yourself see ESCOM as one of the major threats to South Africa's financial health. 
Uh, the debt burden has been slashed somewhat, although there's been tailwinds such as favorable currency movements. Um, the sustainability of cutting that debt is a little bit unknown at this point. What were your takeaways from the ESCOM specific part of the minister's speech? There wasn't much about it that struck me. I mean, we all know that the ESCOM problems going back 12, 13 years has been a massive macroeconomic dampener on the South African economy in the sense that no major industrialist will open up a plant if they're not sure about the electricity supply. The same goes for gold mines, platinum mines. So there's been very, very little new developments, uh, new grassroots developments. As a result of ESCOM, so many industrialists that I speak to have said, I'm not opening up a factory. If I don't know, I can get power. Why would I do that? The foreigners are moving away. So we've already paid the price for ESCOM. It was heartening to see that I think 136 billion rands of ESCOM debt has been paid off. Now, that's going to be interesting how it's been done, but that was the announcement. We'll have to now go and analyze that number. But the ESCOM issue is still this big, massive gorilla in, 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 in the room and how it's dealt with, you know, are they busy, genuinely busy breaking it up into three parts, as I've said, are they going to allow the private sector to come in and produce uh, uh, their own power to assist the national grid? And it's all a mixture of economics and politics, which in South Africa tends to become very murky and in some cases quite quite bloody. Magnus, are the facts changing with regards to South Africa as an investment destination or is it simply too early to say so? No, it's way too early to say so. One must, you know, we, one must accept that... Uh, the, the RAND and the global markets, we suddenly, and we're talking six, seven weeks, barely, the RAND has strengthened, been one of the best performing markets, but it's been driven by commodity. And if you can look at the stocks on our market that are running or have been running, platinum, chrome, iron ore, and then interestingly, one or two banks. Now, I come back, having been in this business almost as long as Alec, that the commodity cycle bites you in, in a very sensitive place when you don't expect it. Just as you think we are in a new commodity super cycle, you've got it tapped, you know everything, you've supply, demand, equilibrium in the markets, something changes, a war breaks out, or worse, peace breaks out, and boom, the market changes. So... The danger is that this commodity cycle is unpredictable and very cyclical and can turn around very, very quickly. So it's very important how government handles this windfall, added to how it's going to deal with this big, the basic income grant. I've now read three or four reports in the last week from various economic commentators, but very serious economic commentators. I'm talking about Isa Mishlango. I'm talking about... Uh, Claude Baisak, I'm talking about Dr. or Professor Ricardo Hausman from Harvard, uh, and the two others that I've read, and they've all the lights are going on and saying, if this is not handled well, we could run into a major, major fiscal problem two to three years down the line, and that will normally take the, the place of uh, a debt standstill or, and then a currency crash. Those, those two factors have not gone away, Justin. And to answer your question, it is nice to look at people that their local assets are now starting to perform. 
But that doesn't mean the strategy, uh, the offshore strategy that we've been following for 13 years now has changed. Nobody, not one of my clients has found up and said, bring back my money. That's not happening. They are very happy, very comfortable with uh, that long-term strategy. Magnus, I've got three questions on the pension fund amendments that uh, are being held for Gazette um, next month. The first is very simple. What are the current legislation with regards to pension funds and um, regulate, regulatory 28 funds in South Africa currently? We, we basically touched on them. One, is, one of the regulations coming through is this two-pot approach by government where they're going to basically create two pots in your pension fund one the one third two thirds and if you run into financial difficulty which would be very strictly defined you will be allowed access to that one pot uh under under certain circumstances etc the two third pot will, will remain there for the rest of your life which is very interesting many commentators have missed this means you cannot withdraw the two-third pots for your entire life. So that money stays there from the day that you join the fund until you retire. So no more early withdrawals and, 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 and withdrawals from pension funds, which is quite quite a significant move in the preservation of pension funds for South Africans. Because South Africans are notoriously, when they run into financial difficulty, they run to the pension fund, whip it out, either resign, pull it out, and they start all over again. The second part is, of course, this infrastructure, uh, which will now be allowed in terms of the amended Regulation 28 uh, rules and pension funds. I'm talking about the big, big funds, Alexander Forbes, Mutual, Sunlam, will be allowed to, based on trustee decisions and fund managers, a certain percentage of their capital into infrastructure plans, whether it's 5 or 10 or 15%. That depends on the manager stroke trustee which, as we discussed earlier in this pro program, sounds great on paper, but will it um, eventuate in, in, in reality? Or would I rather say, like the Irish say, we know it works in practice, but will it work in theory? What, what are you looking for in the amendments next month? You know, I can't answer your question. I mean, we, there's, much, there's not much that we can do. We need to know how the, first of all, what impact and this is a slow-moving target, we won't know for at least a couple of years what impact the exposure to infrastructure projects in South Africa will have on retirement fund returns. We can only speculate, we can only trust the fund managers that they've done their homework, so we'll be watching that carefully down the line. And what kind of choice will they give people? Will they give people choice and saying, are you happy to put money into an infrastructure pot or not? Or would it be one size fits all? So those finer details we don't know yet, and that could become, that could become quite interesting. I'm not just what of Biz News, and I'm chatting to Biz News tribe member, Andrew Goodhead, who's had quite the adventure. You are traveling to the third Biz News conference that starts next Tuesday. Yesterday was your first day. Tell me about it. Hi, Nadia. Um, this evening, I'm sitting in a very luxurious lodge, Roger Kluwer Lodge, just outside Sutherland. But yesterday was, was a tough one. I did 220 Ks yesterday from Cape Town to 
just before the tank were. It was mainly tough due to my poor planning. Okay, uh, but it's good that it happened the a, first day, so now you can <laughs> sort of reassess. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I was full of the adventure and took a few detours and ended up spending a lot of time in, in farmlands trying to climb over fences. <laughs> and in the very end, my battery ran flat and I had to do a, a long push up a hill. But <laughs> there were many victories. Okay, good. The first victory was that I didn't have any mechanicals and I broke my previous record of, of having the longest time in the saddle. I was in oh, the wow. saddle for 13 and a half hours yesterday. What was your previous which, record? I don't know, but it was far less than that. Okay. <laughs> okay. And how fast does the e-bike go? You're traveling on a solar-powered e-bike from Cape Town to the Drakensberg in seven days. That's right. I'm on track at the moment. I saw your get-up. That is insane. I mean, the size of the solar powers are about the size of a bucky. Am I right? Yes, I've got two and a half square meters of, of collection. <laughs> the cool thing is that these solar panels have already been used on a solar car. It was the Bit Solar Car. So they could, wow. this is their second time traveling through the crew. Amazing. They have been far... The, these panels are traveling far further than most would, would ever travel. It must have been beautiful. In the Winelands. It was. It was fantastic. Seeing two um, blue cranes in sort of old wheat fields. Yeah. And I might not have seen that if I hadn't taken a detour. There we go. And the roads, how would you rate them? No potholes. When I was on the tar, I had a wide shoulder. <clears throat> Today okay. I spent about 120 k's off-road. I was traveling deep through the, through the tankway and all of that was on dirt. Okay. But the dirt was surprisingly good. And the weather, how, how does it play into the solar panels working? I mean, what if you have really bad weather one day and there's just, it's super cloudy? I would suffer drastically. Uh, the panels keep the, keep the battery charge at about 75%. So at the end of the day, I was kind of at half. The one problem is the dust from the dirt roads dirties the panels and the efficiency drops a lot. Okay. But every morning I've got a little routine to clean my panels. And then okay. head off. Did you spend the night under the stars last night? I did. I didn't make it to my destination. I saw a photo of you with your socks in the air. <laughs> <laughs> it looked really cool though. I had a very beautiful night under the stars. Oh. And I uh, gave a wine delivery to a very surprised farmer at half past nine last night when I ended the ride. I made a decision to go to the next light I found and there was an old farmer and his wife with two big dogs. Luckily the dogs didn't bite me, but oh, no, no, he was very surprised to have a, um, <laughs> a wine delivered <laughs> at 9.30. Yeah, on a solar powered e-bike. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Can you listen to music when you're busy or do you have to sort of have your wits about you? Is that a little bit dangerous maybe? Generally it's not advised, you should be sort of super aware of what's going around you mm. and i've got the whole trailer behind me i've become accustomed to the rattle that the trailer makes and if okay. the rattle changes pitch i know that there's something amiss mm. okay so i like being able to hear what's what's happening a bolt broke today and my chain broke uh both of those i managed to fix but if i had that heard, what you would call a mechanical that's what i would call a mechanical yeah okay. and those are the only two i've had the whole trip Amazing. Which is fantastic. 
Okay, so Sutherland tonight. How's the weather? I've heard Sutherland is the place in the country that gets the coldest, but I'm not sure if this applies to summer nights too. It gets the hottest and coldest. So during the day, it's baking, ah. and then at night, it gets quite messy. So it's probably better that you have a bed this evening. <laughs> oh, I'm super excited. <laughs> I can imagine. And a shower. Oh, that's amazing. Okay, so where did you get your solar pa- your, the solar panels? Uh, you can buy them commercially. A setup like mine, it costs about four, probably about 9,000 rand. Uh, but these are quite special panels. These are okay. thin panels without a glass covering. And these ones you got from? Is SolarSaver helping you out? SolarSaver is. They're helping me out with, with the other build-up. I've got quite a few electrical components to make the solar system go together. These particular panels, I um, got them from a friend at Vits. How fast does it go? Is there a legal limit that you're allowed to go on an e-bike? 25 kilometers per hour. And that classifies the bike as like class one. And that allows you to ride on the cycle lanes. This bike, I can go 32 k's an hour while the motor is still assisting me. After that, the motor kicks out and I have to go under my own steam. Okay, but there's no exercise involved. Oh, there's a lot of exercise. <laughs> there's a lot. <laughs> I've only ever seen one e-bike and it was Santa that came on an e-bike to visit my nephews last year. <laughs> it's a whole new world, but that is the only time like experience I have with one. So what muscles? Took um, I'm towing a lot behind me. Okay. The, the trailer okay. is probably 60 kilograms, and that includes the six bottles of wine. Of course. Um, so you have to, this is a pedal assist e-bike, and uh, so you have to put energy in, and then it gives you a certain amount on top of that. Oh, um, I'm getting about 300 watts extra from the motor. Okay, so tomorrow, how many Ks are we doing? Tomorrow's plan is 300 kilometers. It's quite a flat route. I'm not sure if I'll make it. I don't have a designated host to be at tomorrow night. So All I'll right. go as far as I can, then call it quits when the sun goes down. It's part of the, the joy of tour cycling is just going as far as you can and then you've got everything with you to, to survive for the night. Well, then I'm going to catch up with you tomorrow whenever you get settled. Hey guys, Mark here. The situation in Ukraine is still moving very fast. Please keep in mind that things may have changed by the time you listen to today's podcast. Today is Friday, February 25th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Russian tanks and armored vehicles stormed Ukraine from three separate fronts yesterday. Reports say the city of Kyiv is on the verge of falling to Russian forces. And the UK wants to punish Russia by removing it from a major payment system. Plus, the war in Ukraine is shaking global markets. The FT's Katie Martin puts it in perspective. Everybody that I've spoken today is completely blindsided and depressed and honestly feels a little bit icky talking about markets when there are much more important things going on. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. Ukrainians woke to explosions yesterday as peace in Europe was shattered. Hours earlier on Thursday, President Vladimir Putin ordered Russia's military to invade Ukraine from the north, south, and eastern borders. 
Western powers were quick to condemn Russia. French President Emmanuel Macron held a call with Putin yesterday and demanded he stop Russia's military actions. And Western countries continue to place sanctions on Russia. President Joe Biden announced he was cutting off Russia's biggest lender from the U.S. financial system. Meanwhile, the European Union is preparing a far-reaching package of sanctions. They would freeze some transactions with Russian banks, ban some state-owned companies from listing on EU stock exchanges, and stop Russian nationals from making large deposits in EU institutions. But still, it seems Russia could capture Ukraine's capital soon. A senior Western official told the Financial Times it won't be long until Russia assembles overwhelming military forces around Kyiv, a city of nearly 3 million people. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson wants to punish Russia by ejecting it from an international payment system. SWIFT is a Belgium cooperative that's used by more than 11,000 banks and financial institutions around the world. It essentially keeps track of trillions of dollars worth of transactions every day. Russia accounted for about 1.5% of the transactions on the SWIFT system in 2020. This is incredibly important for any country or company, or especially bank, to be part of the international financial system. That's our banking editor, Stephen Morris. He says that while Johnson is leading the charge to ban Russia from SWIFT, the British prime minister is having a hard time getting other countries on board. Germany, um, the EU, and and even the US is still undecided on, on whether to impose the SWIFT ban. But essentially, they're worried about reciprocal damage to their economies and their financial institutions. Um, The European Union relies on Russia for a huge amount of its natural gas and oil supply and pays for that using the SWIFT system. There could be ways found around um, Russia not being able to participate, but they would be very difficult. So really, they're just thinking here about what the knock-on damage would be to their countries and their financial systems. So, Stephen, what does SWIFT have to say about all this? Well, of course, SWIFT has found itself in an incredibly difficult and delicate position. I spoke to somebody earlier with knowledge of their operations, and they said it's a very delicate balancing act. But at the moment, they're just staying quiet, trying to keep their heads down and not attract any more attention than they have already. But in a way, I suppose it reinforces the importance of SWIFT to the cross-border banking system in the sense that you know, taking out one country from it could have such severe rep- repercussions on its economy. And how does SWIFT play into this? And and can the UK convince other countries to get on board with removing Russia from the payment system? Well, SWIFT played a large role in helping exclude Iran from the financial system when there were sanctions on the country a while ago. But it would need to be combined with direct sanctions on some of the largest financial institutions, corporates, and most powerful people in Russia as well. Otherwise, in and of itself, a SWIFT ban wouldn't apply the amount of pressure desired by Western governments. Um, We have already seen that the UK has imposed direct sanctions on VTB, the second largest bank in Russia, freezing its assets in this country, um, as well as preventing debt being raised. Um, So there are a variety of other measures of which SWIFT is one. Um, But at the moment, considering there's been so much debate between the countries, it looks like, at least in the short term, we're not going to get a coordinated international um, decision to ban SWIFT. And just one country going alone is not enough to cut it. You need to be coordinated. Stephen Morris is the FT's banking editor. The war in Ukraine is wreaking havoc on commodities. 
On Thursday, Brent crude oil burst above $105 a barrel for the first time since 2014, and European gas contracts jumped as much as 70 percent after Russia invaded Ukraine. Russian and European equities had a horrible day, while U.S. stocks were up a healthy amount. To digest this and other market movements, I'm joined by Kitty Martin, our markets editor. Hi, Kitty. Hey, how are you going? I'm doing okay. Um, Kitty, how would you describe the mood in markets yesterday? It's utterly grim. I mean, everybody that I've spoken today is completely blindsided and depressed and honestly feels a little bit icky talking about markets when there are much more important things going on in a way. You know, everyone is totally shocked by the scenes that we're seeing on television screens from Ukraine. You know, nonetheless, people who look after our savings and investments and pensions and all the rest of it are are paid to look after our money and they have to think about what the economic and market ramifications are. And at the moment, they're, they're really not not pretty at all. It's very clear this was a very big shock to fund managers. Yeah, I want to thank you for making that point about the seriousness of this war. That's a really important perspective to keep right now. So, Katie, there's a lot going on in the global markets. What are investors looking for? What really matters to global investors is what happens to commodities prices and to major stock markets. So the upshot for global markets and for US markets is basically this, right? It's that this pushes commodities prices, which have already been on a you know rip higher. It pushes them even higher. It makes the outlook for inflation even uglier. So we've already got inflation running at 7.5% in the US. All things being equal, this pushes inflation still higher. And so this makes life very difficult for central bankers, right? Because on the one hand, they don't want to raise interest rates into an environment where there's literally war in Europe. On the other hand, to the extent that this is super inflationary, they can't afford to sit back and allow an inflation spiral that's already gone well beyond most people's comfort zone. What this probably means is that the Fed, for example, there's been some talk that it might raise interest rates by half a percentage point in March. That feels incredibly unlikely now, but maybe they do still stick with a quarter of a percentage point, which is the normal increment that they move by. Yeah, and that potentially softer touch by the Fed on interest rates, it it seemed to have affected U.S. stocks because the Nasdaq finished Thursday up three and a third percent. Katie, we saw a lot of investors rush into cash yesterday. How come? It's just all the classic bolt holes. You know, there's a certain amount of muscle memory in global markets where when the going gets tough, it's gold, it's Swiss franc, it's Japanese yen, it's the dollar, it's US treasuries. I tell you what it's not, is Bitcoin. So the idea that cryptocurrencies are some sort of geopolitical haven or that they're an inflation hedge, that narrative has been rather challenged over the past few days. But um, yeah, it's just a bolt to safety. Katie Martin is the FT's markets editor. Thanks, Katie. Pleasure. And before we go, our Moscow bureau chief, Max Seddon, and other experts will be hosting a free webinar on the Russia-Ukraine conflict today. FT subscribers can tune in today at 1 p.m. London, 8 in the morning, New York. You can sign up at ft.com slash Ukraine webinar. Again, that's ft.com slash Ukraine webinar. We'll also have a link in the show notes. Ukraine. 
You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back next week for the latest business news. The FT News Briefing is produced by Fiona Simon and me, Mark Filipino. Our editor is Jess Smith. We had help this week from Eli Meixler, Joanna Gao, George Drake Jr., David De Silva, Peter Barber, and Gavin Coleman. Our executive producer is Topher Forges. Cheryl Brumley is the FT's global head of audio. And our theme song is by Manafort Music. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.